Thank you, Tad. And uh, church family, I just want to thank everyone for their love and prayers and help. Uh, we are all COVID negative these days, and so uh, we're not thankful for the test as much as we are for the opportunity to be back with all of you. And uh, last weekend, we really enjoyed being part of the anniversary celebration and thankful for the AV team who live streamed that. And at that event, I was supposed to um, give a charge in light of our anniversary. And so I wanted to do that this morning. Uh, Our theme last week for the anniversary celebration was Hebrews 12, keeping our eyes on Christ in faith. And Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And our goal moving forwards in light of all that God has done. And Kevin shared that. In light of all that God is doing. And Ted shared about that. Just so you know for our church our vision moving forward is really here in Hebrews twelve fourteen. It's that together we might see Christ and the Lord more clearly in the days ahead than we have in the days that have gone before us. One day that will be complete when Christ comes again. We'll see him face to face and we'll be like him. And what stands in our way is our sinfulness. But the Lord, as Ted prayed, sanctifies us with his word. And as Hebrews tells us, a good father who loves his children disciplines his children. That sanctification, it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost to Christ. But it is difficult and it is hard. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians 3, to gain Christ is worth everything. And that is the journey we are taking together. And that is the path which we travel. And that is what we look forward to in our joy and delight. And the kindness of the Lord is each day we get to see him a little more clearly than we did before. And this happens, of course, through his word and through his gospel. And this morning we return to the God-breathed words of Matthew 3. We're coming to the very end. And we're coming back to the baptism of Jesus of Nazareth by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, where Jews from all over have come to confess their sins and be baptized by John the Baptist in obedience to the word of God that's spoken by John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you'll recall that initially John the Baptist resists Jesus and he tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. And he says to Jesus, I myself need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus insists. And he says to John the Baptist, let it be so now. And then he explains to John, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John the Baptist consents. And together with repentant and broken sinners, Jesus undergoes a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it's with this baptism That Jesus shows us who he is. And he shows us what he has come to do. 
And it's in this way Jesus shows us, ultimately, and as we come to the end, what is pleasing to God. And that's going to be our focus this morning. What is pleasing to God? Well, I asked you on our Facebook site, for those of you who are on it, to say, hey, have a look at this documentary about Pope Francis, a man of his word. And it walks you through in that documentary what Pope Francis thinks is pleasing to God. And in many ways, it's not that different than what many Christians, evangelical or Catholic, think is pleasing to God. And it's a question that we need to consider and ask ourselves. What is pleasing to God? Well, God himself, through his son Jesus Christ, shows us exactly what is pleasing to him. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 3.13. I'll read that portion which I just shared with you and will come. Our focus this morning will be verses 16 through 17. And I'm reading through the English Standard Version. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. AV team, could I have my first slide? Thank you. Well, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.9 writes, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, or in the NASB, we make it our ambition, to please Him. And he's talking about the Lord. Or in the NASB, to be pleasing to Him. And it's with these words, the Apostle Paul spells out to us as Christians... As saints, as the household of God, what our ultimate aim is to be. For every Christian, every church, in every aspect of our lives, what is that ultimate aim? It's to be pleasing to Him. To be pleasing to Him. And that, of course, raises the question, well, what is really pleasing to God? What is it that really pleases God? What gives God joy? What gives Him delight? What gives Him a smile on His face? What gives Him infinite joy? Is it the end of world poverty? Is it social justice? Is it The MVP, making disciples of Jesus. Now among us this morning, many of you are new members. You're going to come to the new members class that we're holding after. I think we've got 13 to 16 people who have signed up to come to the new members class and to try and get an appreciation of what this church is all about. 
Well, as you look, and one of the questions that you've asked as you've gone to the visitor's table is, well, what is a good church? What is a healthy church? What should I be looking for? Well, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.9 answers that question. You need to be looking for a church that is pleasing to God. If you are at a church and you come here and say, this church is not pleasing to God, you need to run to the doors, right? The last place you want to be is in a church that is not pleasing to the Lord. And by extension, the last place you want to be is with people in a church that are not pleasing to the Lord. And so there's a lot, brothers and sisters, that rides on this question. And frankly, in the church in North America, it's really confusing. Is it pleasing to the Lord to give large sums of money? Is it pleasing to the Lord to start hospitals with your name on it? Is it pleasing to the Lord to, however we raise our children... Is it pleasing to the Lord to set up missions overseas? Is it pleasing to the Lord to plant churches? What is pleasing to the Lord? Well, in Matthew 3, 13 through 17, God shows us without any ambiguity or confusion exactly what pleases Him. We're not going to find it brothers and sisters, in any other place in the Word of God and from the mouth of God. And very simply... It is Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. It is Jesus. It is who Jesus is and it is what Jesus does that pleases God, that gives God infinite joy, that gives Him infinite delight, that gives Him a heart filled with celebration, that puts a smile on His face. Part of the implication of that, brothers and sisters, if you don't have Jesus, you can't be pleasing to the Lord. You can do all of those different things. End poverty, stop wars, donate huge amounts of money, serve as a pastor, go to seminary, and if you don't have Jesus. What's the flip side of that, brothers and sisters? It's the good news of the gospel. Sinners, though we may be, what we just sang, William Cooper's hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood where wretched sinners can wash and bathe. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to give up everything to know Christ and to possess Christ and to have Christ. Because at the end of the day, he is the only one who pleases God. And in Matthew three thirteen through 17, what we read God spells out very specifically his joy, his delight, and his pleasure is expressed visibly, audibly, publicly in response to first Jesus' journey from Galilee to the Jordan River to be with broken and repentant sinners. And his joy and delight and pleasure comes in response to Jesus' insistence in being baptized by John together with these broken, repentant sinners, who are being baptized with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then finally, in the culmination, God's joy and delight and pleasure is in response to Jesus' humble submission and obedience to all that God has promised and all that God requires, according to His Word. 
Because that, brothers and sisters, is what baptism is all about. That's what Jesus is doing in this baptism. He's surrendering and he's submitting to all that God requires and all that God has commanded. He's giving up his life. He's surrendering it. He's losing control because he's placing his life in the hands of sinful men and he's placing his hands ultimately in the word of God. And that's visibly demonstrated as John the Baptist takes Jesus and he puts his life in John the Baptist's hands and he immerses him or drowns him in the dirty Jordan River and then he brings him out. And all of this, as Jesus explains to John the Baptist comes down to one thing. It comes down to Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, not for himself, brothers and sisters, but for broken and repentant sinners. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has come to do. And this, brothers and sisters, is ultimately what pleases God. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Jesus is the one who pleases God by fulfilling all righteousness, not for himself, but for sinners. Jesus is the one who pleases God by fulfilling all righteousness for sinners. In all four Gospels and also in Acts, Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River is set apart by the word of God as the official commencement or inauguration of Jesus' gospel ministry as the Messiah in Israel. And like most commencements and inaugurations, and we've mentioned this before, Jesus' baptism is the official proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. You want an idea of what a president is going to do? You sit through his inaugural speech and his inauguration. And you see from President Trump's inauguration, you get a good idea of what the next four years are going to be like and what the agenda is. And similarly with President Biden. Well, beginning with his conversation with John the Baptist in verse 15, and then with his baptism, Jesus makes it very clear that he has not come to serve or please himself. Brothers and sisters, serving and pleasing ourselves is not pleasing to God. It's not the be-all and end-all. Fulfilling our dreams and our expectations and our desires. Living out our experiences. Ultimately, that's not what pleases God. Jesus comes not to serve himself very clearly. He's not there because he's looking for a good time. Or he's looking for a family. Or he's looking for a school to raise his children in. He has not come to please and fulfill the expectations of men. Even good men like John the Baptist. Sorry to disappoint you, John the Baptist. Yes, you're a prophet. Yes, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, you speak the truth. But I'm not here to fulfill your expectations. So often as a pastor, people come to me and they want counseling, but what they're looking for is the validation of a pastor, as if I'm a Catholic priest and I can say that your sins are forgiven. They want to think they're a good person because they have my approval. My approval, brothers and sisters, ain't worth a lick. When you stand before the Lord, what matters is His approval. 
And Jesus here resists John the Baptist. and I'm not here to meet your expectations, John the Baptist, of what the Messiah should be. Jesus has come to be and to do what no man will be and what no man can do. He has come to be and to do all that pleases God. In the only way God can be pleased. And there's only one way that God can be pleased. It's in the fulfillment, not of some righteousness, brothers and sisters, but all righteousness. So what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? Is it, as we've seen, the end of poverty? Is it serving in a soup kitchen? Is it raising a nice and good family? What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, righteousness is about being right with God. It's about being right with God according to His Word. And how can we be right with God? Well, Jesus explains that to us in the Sermon of the Mount, which we'll get to sometime. Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Righteousness, brothers and sisters, according to God's word, To fulfill or to complete all righteousness according to God's word. It involves two things. We have it up on the PowerPoint, hopefully. Number one, it involves being. The indicative, being. And it involves doing. The imperative, both of them together. You can't have one without the other. It involves being and doing All that God requires. It involves being and doing all that God requires according to his word. All that is right before God. Put in lay terms, it means living up to God's expectations, not our expectations. It means living up to God's word completely and perfectly. Not our words. Now, most of us, we tend to comfort ourselves by believing that righteousness or being right or being a good person is about doing a few good things here or there. And as long as the good we do outweighs the bad we do, I've done more good than bad, I've been better to my kids more often than not, okay? That, brothers and sisters, is a form of relativism, okay? relativism, if I do more good than bad, well, I'm, I'm okay. And when you ask most people why they think they're going to go to heaven, it's, well, I've done more good things than bad. I'm not an axe murderer, okay? But brothers and sisters, when we do that, and we do that frequently, and you just ask yourself, how offended do you really get over your sin? How broken and how grieved are you? Whether your sin be small or big. And it's interesting to see when we have patterns in on sin in our lives, how it becomes an area which 
we don't get upset about ourselves and we don't get upset about other people sometimes doing those things. Well, what we're really doing, brothers and sisters, when we do that is we're living up to our expectations and not God's. We're living up to our expectation, not God's. And we're living a life that's about feeling good about ourselves. Rather than being right with God. And that may work out temporarily for a few minutes or a few moments. But from the beginning, being right with God was about being and doing all that God created us to be and to do according to his word. I know there's some Andrew Wiggins haters out there. I say this, this will date my sermon. Years from now it will become irrelevant, right? But for those who like basketball, Andrew Wiggins is this Canadian basketball player who gets drafted and he gets drafted number one. And he's to become Air Canada, right? He's to become the next Michael Jordan from Canada. He doesn't live up to that expectation, so people hate him. It's not enough that he's number three or number four. He wasn't number one. That's, that's what we put all our time, investment, emotion into. And we see how cruel people can be when we don't meet their expectations. Put you on a podium one day, tear you down the next. That is not the way with our God. God created us and called us and put everything at our disposal to be and do all that he desires for us and all that he's put in his word. And this is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 3... What Adam and Eve intentionally walk away from is they walk away from the righteousness of God. This is what they do. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve to be his children. And to fulfill this calling of being his children by trusting and obeying all that he has commanded them. And this is both right and good. It's right before God, but also, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice this. It's right and good for Adam and Eve. God's righteousness is what keeps Adam and Eve in the palm of his hand, in his protection, in the place of fellowship and love. God's not some mean curmudgeon giving you a list of rules because he wants to give you a bad time. He's doing it to enable them to fulfill their calling, to be his image bearers, to show his love and his goodness to the rest of the world and to spread it. And instead of choosing God's righteousness, Adam and Eve choose to do what was right in their own eyes. They choose to become the enemies of God. And how do they do that? They do that by intentionally disbelieving God and disobeying his word. And the result is their fellowship with God is broken. They're separated from God. They're separated from one another. And they end up in a place of darkness and death. Adam and Eve learn the hard way, as we frequently do, that righteousness is about a right relationship. It's not, brothers and sisters, primarily about 
Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. That's a small part of it, brothers and sisters. It's about a right relationship with God. And it's about a right relationship that ultimately is the fruit of perfect love and faith. Righteousness, brothers and sisters, is an expression of love. Righteousness is an expression of faith. When we are not righteous, we are not loving rightly and we are not trusting rightly. Like a good father, God wants what's right for his children because he loves them. Good children do what's right because they trust in the love of their parents. And Jesus shepherds the disciples with this in the Gospel of John. John 14, 15, he says to the disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's showing them that keeping the commandments isn't an award to try and get a 4.0 on a seminary exam. It's about expressing love and faithfulness and fidelity for the one who has come to love you and die for you. And Jesus is only modeling for them what he himself is doing. That everything the Father asks of him, he does. And he delights in doing. Why? Because he loves the Father. Because the Father has asked him. And this is what translates into righteousness. And with Jesus' baptism by John, what does Jesus do? In love, he surrenders and he sacrifices his life to do all that God commands, all that God requires, even if it means rejection, humiliation, and condemnation. And he's doing this, brothers and sisters, not for himself. He's doing all that God requires, not just for the good people. He's doing all that God requires and commands of sinners. That's what the baptism is about. That's why John the Baptist protests. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is for sinners. This is what God commands and he requires of sinners. It's not do a few good things, raise a good family, preach a good sermon. It's repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And this is why John the Baptist initially refuses. This is why Jesus insists. John the Baptist's point, you don't need to repent because you are already righteous. Well, the point that Jesus makes in verse 15, where he says it's fitting for us, he's making the point, listen, this isn't for me. He's not doing this for himself. From the very beginning, Jesus has come to surrender his life to be and to do all that God requires of sinners. Even death on a cross for the sins of others. Just as God has promised in his word. It's one thing to fulfill righteousness for a good person. It's one thing to be kind and love good people. It's a different game when you're making up for the sins of others. And this is exactly what Jesus has come to do. And this is why he undergoes a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the Jordan River. And this is what pleases God because this is the love and faith of a perfect son. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Jesus is the beloved son 
with whom God is well pleased. Jesus is the beloved son with whom God is well pleased. At my medical school graduation, my father pulled one of my professors aside and he expressed his shock and disbelief that I graduated from medical school. To understand that, you have to understand some chin contacts. My mother was worried that I would grow up and become a criminal. Now, in an Asian household, all you need to do is not get a 4.0 or go to the principal's office a few times and you're going to be a criminal. But nonetheless, she was worried that I would become a criminal because of my time in the principal's office and getting into trouble. And in fairness to my father, he had had to bail me out of a number of tight circumstances and he did so graciously and lovingly repeatedly. And at the end of the day, they didn't know what to expect. Well, in verse 16 and 17, as we see God's response to Jesus' baptism and what Jesus has done from the very beginning. We see that God knows exactly what to expect and his expectations are completely fulfilled. This is no surprise. And God shows us in three ways and by three supernatural signs with three witnesses, three witnesses, Old Testament, two or three witnesses in an official court is the legal requirement for a valid testimony with these three signs and three, these three witnesses and these three ways. God goes on the record to show everyone he's not surprised. He goes on the record to show everyone that Jesus is everything he expected. Jesus is everything that he promised of a son. One who perfectly abides in his Father's love. One who perfectly abides in his Father's word. One who perfectly lives up to all his Father expects and promises. One who perfectly bears his Father's image. A chip off the old block. And we see this in verse 16. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And you'll recall, behold, when Matthew uses that, he's pointing to a supernatural sign, a work of God, that's a fulfillment of God's word and prophecy, a divine sign that God uses to get our attention. And here this supernatural work or fulfillment of God's word involves the opening of heavens, of the heavens. It's the removal of separation between God and man that's come about as a result of our unrighteousness. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly promises his people. If you don't repent, if you repeatedly walk away from me, if you harden your heart to me, I'm going to harden the skies. I'm going to seal the heavens. I'm going to shut the heavens off. I'm going to cut you off from fellowship with me. I'm going to cut you off from my word. I'm going to cut you off from my blessing. I'm going to cut you off from the life and love of God until my people humble themselves My people who are called in my name pray and repent and they cry out to me. And brothers and sisters, as we look at Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed against mankind, 
where he gives mankind over to do whatever their sick and hardened and sinful hearts want. Living for your desires. Living for your expectations. Living to feel good about yourselves. Living to feel validated about whatever you think. God's wrath is revealed by giving you over to those things and letting you go and have at it. That is the revealed wrath of God. And that is what we are living in America today. Where abuse is hurting someone's feelings. And I don't say that to minimize true physical or emotional or spiritual abuse. Our words are to edify and build up, not tear down. But our words are to speak the truth in love. And if someone is sick or hurting. Or they are suffering from an ensnarement from sin. It is a kindness and mercy to say. You're not right with the Lord. But there's a remedy. And the remedy to be pleasing with the Lord. Is a righteousness you don't have. It's Christ. When the heavens open. God is showing. That a righteousness has appeared and has been given on earth that is pleasing to him. And we see the effect of righteousness, brothers and sisters. The effect and beauty of righteousness is it opens the heavens and it restores fellowship. And it restores joy and it restores love and it restores everything we've lost. Have you ever had a conflict in the home? Have you ever sinned against someone? Do you understand how fellowship gets broken and the consequence of that? The reason that's there is because there is nothing right and there is no righteousness. We've thrown it out the door. What is it that's needed to restore that fellowship? Brothers and sisters, I hate to say it, it's not enough to say you're sorry. God shows us that in the Old Testament through the New Testament. Righteousness needs to be restored. And when things are made right and righteousness is restored, guess what? That fellowship is restored. That love is restored. That family is restored. And there's a sweetness and an intimacy that exists after that didn't exist before. Well, the Lord shows to the earth as the heavens are open that righteousness has come. And here in response to the righteousness of Jesus, God reopens the heavens and he sends his spirit just as he did at the creation of the world. As his second supernatural sign, excuse me, and fulfillment of his word. It says, and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now it's worth noting that Matthew 1, from conception, Jesus is already filled with the Holy Spirit. Conceived in Mary's womb. So this is not some charismatic gifting or a second bestowing of the Spirit. Jesus is not some Marvel superhero, okay, who goes and has some experience and then gets zapped and has supernatural power and then is able to go out and be Superman. That's not what this is about. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 8, God chooses a bird like a dove to be the symbol and sign Of his spirit and his new creation that the spirit brings. And in the Old Testament the anointing of the spirit is given to God's kings and prophets and leaders. As a visible sign for the benefit of God's people. 
that visible sign of anointing with oil and then anointing with the Spirit is actually, to a great degree, for the benefit of the people of God. So that they know this person who God has given us as a leader, this is God's gift to us. The Spirit of God resides on him. He has fellowship with God. God is in his life. He's led by God, not himself or his own agenda or his own expectations. To show them who the Lord has chosen and equipped for service with the gift of fellowship with God. God's presence in their lives. An expression of God's love. And this is why when you read Psalm 51, King David's psalm of repentance where he cries out to the Lord after he's committed adultery and his fellowship with the Lord is broken and he says to the Lord, against you, you alone have I sinned. He goes on and says to the Lord, he pleads with the Lord, don't take away your spirit from me. Old covenant saint, king, he's been anointed with the spirit to show the people he has fellowship with God. Well, he's broken that fellowship with sin. It pleads with God, don't take your spirit away from me because I don't deserve it. I've sinned against you. Well, who is truly righteous? Who has the fellowship of the Lord? Well, Isaiah eleven forty two, the Lord God promises to those who repent and place their trust in him and in his word, he's going to send them a savior and a king who is truly righteous. Someone who is going to bear and bring the spirit and fellowship of God. Someone who has something that they don't have. And as you go through the history of Israel, something that really not only did they walk away from, they trampled on. And God says, well, For those who repent and come to me, I'm going to send someone who's going to bring it to you. I'm going to send someone who's going to bring you a new beginning, a new fellowship with God. You have your Bibles, have a look at Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and it goes through all the different ways the spirit of the Lord is going to rest on the one who the Lord is going to send and then in verse 5 he says righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins what's the testimony of the spirit's presence and guiding it's righteousness brothers and sisters And then you go to chapter 12 of Isaiah 12. That's your homework. And you read about the salvation that the Lord brings. Well, by sending his spirit like a dove to rest on Jesus, God is affirming who Jesus is. This is who he is. And then in verse 17, after 400 years of silence, from the end of the Old Testament to the arrival of Jesus... The removal of the glory of the Lord. Silence because of the people's hardness of heart and unrepentant sin. God breaks the silence and he speaks publicly for the first time. Why does he do that? Because the righteousness of the Lord has come to broken and repentant sinners. And verse 17 says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Some people use this and 
They say, well, Jesus was really a man, and this is the point where he becomes a son. This is his point of adoption. This is an adoption ceremony. But the language of Scripture says no. It says this is present progressive tense. Past, present, future, ongoing, always has been. God is showing them who is the one who fulfills all righteousness. Who is the one who surrenders his life in shame and rejection for the sins of others. Who is it that brings the spirit and restores fellowship? Who is it that opens the heavens and removes what your sin has brought in? Who is it that overcomes and fills the deficit of the sins that you have performed? Past, present, and future. There is only one. My son. My beloved son. The one with whom I am well pleased. One of the highlights of my life was graduating from seminary. Julie put together a little celebration afterwards. I think it was fried chicken. Had all my friends. But that was a sweet moment for me after that time. Because it was a hard season to go through and realize God had brought me through so many difficulties. Because I couldn't get through on my own. So many times where I thought, how am I going to get this done? And the Lord graciously kindly broke me and brought me through and to be on that stage to hear my name called to hear Dr. Varner preach from the book of Jeremiah to go up to receive the diploma and then at the end after receiving the diploma given to me to go and have Dr. MacArthur shake my hand and whisper in my ear thank you Mark what are you thanking me for? And in a sense here, because I ain't Jesus, it's just an illustration, but we see in many ways, this is like a commencement ceremony, where the speech is the word of God, the diploma is the Holy Spirit, the seal and guarantee to demonstrate before all. And the words that are spoken and the applause and the cheers, they come from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. It is an affirmation which no one can deny. Very clearly God gives this as a message to all who see and all who hear. This Messiah who is willing to surrender his life to do all that God requires of sinners. To be right with God. Past, present and future. This one is God's beloved son. This is what pleases God. This is the one with whom God is pleased. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Jesus is God's gift of righteousness for sinners like you and I. Jesus is God's gift of righteousness for sinners like you and I. What Jesus' baptism, brothers and sisters, shows us, I hope, shows us the gospel, brothers and sisters. It shows us the good news of Jesus Christ. It shows us, brothers and sisters, that righteousness is not this legalistic thing where God's a curmudgeon and we're trying to chip away like a Muslim or a Buddhist person and try to get it right. And if I don't get it right, we can never get it right. And that's what the good news of the gospel is, that God has sent someone with a righteousness that we don't have. And that righteousness is an expression of God's love. His perfect love and his sufficiency and his grace and his goodness. 
It's an expression of God's love for sinners. How often do we think of righteousness as God's expression of love for sinners? Because what's right is what's in God's word. And what God has promised is that he will come and save sinners who by faith turn to him. And look to him as their only hope of salvation. That is right and pleasing to God. And that's why when we get to Luke 15, I believe it is. What does Luke say? Luke makes the point, Luke 15, 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And Jesus is saying this in the context of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes who are not good people, but they see Jesus is willing to give them a righteousness that they do not possess. They see in Jesus the love of God. A right person, brothers and sisters, someone who's right with God is someone who has a love that forgives and shows grace because they have been forgiven, because they are rich with the righteousness of God. It's a very, very different picture than all the other religions of the world. The good news of the gospel, what God's showing is this righteousness of God is a gift for sinners. That's who and what Jesus is. He is the only remedy for sin and he is God's gift for sinners. Dr. MacArthur and Dr. Mayhew write, At the very outset, it is necessary to understand that salvation is a matter of righteousness. People are condemned to eternal spiritual death because they lack the righteousness that a perfect, holy God possesses and requires for fellowship with Him. And the only way sinners are ever reconciled to God is by being given a righteousness that belongs to God Himself. Brothers and sisters, what's the remedy for a broken marriage? What's the remedy for a broken family? What's the remedy for a broken life? It's righteousness, brothers and sisters, because righteousness restores us to fellowship with God and gives us a heart of forgiveness and grace and love, and it restores us into a right relationship with those we've sinned against. What is it that pleases God, brothers and sisters? It's only Jesus. It's only who Jesus is. It's only what Jesus has done. How can we be pleasing to God? Well, brothers and sisters, there is only one way. We need Jesus. And you don't need Jesus just when you get saved, brothers and sisters. You need it as you grow in Christ. You need it as a church. You need it in your family. You need him in your place of work. And in John 15, Jesus rules out very specifically how we are to walk and remain and abide in his love. We are washed by his word, but we need to hear and obey. We need to live with him. We need to spend time with him, brothers and sisters. And so we have to look at our lives and say, do we, like Paul, have that sense? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And then Paul goes on to say in Philippians 3, 8, 9, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain what? A seminary degree? A ministry? A pulpit? A big church? People who love me? No. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let me close with this final illustration. Probably 12 years ago, I got invited to a wedding. The people didn't know me from Adam. Steve and Kathy Hong's wedding. I don't think they'd ever seen me before. It's the first time I met Pastor John and some of you all. I'm sure Kathy thought, who's this guy with the funny suit who's shown up? Well, I had asked the night before their wedding, I'd asked Julie's dad if I could marry her. So graciously, I was allowed to come to the wedding. And graciously, when it came time for family photos, Julie's dad included me in the family photos. I said, are you sure? He brought me in, right? So Steve and Kathy have to put up with me in their family photos of their wedding. I'm sure initially when they look at it, who's this guy? Why was I there? Why was I in the family photos? Why did I get to go to the wedding? It's because Mr. Hong loves Julie and Julie loved me. And it's only because of that love that I was brought into that family. And I'm sure if Mr. Hong had met me on another occasion and looked at different aspects of my life or my history, he might have said, I don't know about this guy. But by grace and by love, I was brought into that family and made a part of that family, not because of anything I had done. And then we think later in life, what we do to please our in-laws, right? You want a clean house, you want to get them a nice meal. We focus on all of these other things. And yet, What's the most important thing to please my father-in-law? I know what it is to please Mr. Hong. It's that I love his daughter. I can buy her the best car. I can take her on the best vacation. I can get the biggest house. I can do all of those things, the biggest diamond ring. If I do not love her, it doesn't matter a lick to Mr. Hong. And brothers and sisters, many times in our Christian life, we're like that. God has given us everything. He's given all his righteousness and all his love in one person and one place alone. It's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And yet as believers, we're worried about world peace, ending hunger, not that those aren't good things. Right? Poverty, we need to worry about those things. We do. But brothers and sisters, if we've lost the love of Christ and we're not spending time with him and we're not walking with him in his word and we're not praying with him and we're not joying and delighting and celebrating that love and praising him for that. So brothers and sisters, let's do that. Because what a Savior and what a God. Lord Jesus, what you are, we don't begin to know and appreciate. You are the beloved son with whom God is well pleased. And you have shown us the pleasure of God and you've given us the pleasure of God that we might celebrate in your home, in your family, in your place. Not because of anything we have done, but because you are the righteousness of God. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.